Yo, Albert Tate Podcast Season 1 and a half. It's the remix season. It was time for me to fire myself. Nobody understands what I've had to endure to get and achieve what I've done. Don't feel embarrassed about your call. I feel like we're at this threshold of opportunity. Yo, welcome back. Albert Tate Podcast Season 1 and a half. It's the remix season where we're talking about moments from season one uh, that you need to go back and listen to if you hadn't listened to it. Um, and I'm kind of bringing reflection and thoughts of my experience from the different interviews I had in season one where we just talked about moments of when things shaped us. I flew out to reach records in the studio with my man Lecrae. Oh my goodness, we had a fascinating conversation. We talked about how hip hop shaped us, but it went in a whole nother direction on a powerful conversation about race. Hip hop is all about um, confidence, swag, speaking truth. In one verse, you'll have celebration, inspiration, and anger, frustration, expressed all uh, in 16 bars. I, like, it, it's one of the first times as a young person growing up, you had, you had music that fully expressed uh, a culture and a people, um, kind of through blues, through gospel. But in the late 80s and the early 90s, there was a renewal, a revival, if you will. Um, and we had a new sound that reflects that reflected new realities of blackness, of urban life. And that became the full expression of hip hop, not just music, but clothing, um, art, artistry, tagging, um, dancing, movement, all of that stuff. It became a full expression of a people. Um, and that full expression also carried our burden. So it is the, it is the beauty of the burden and the blessing all coming together in one verse. It is that I can be living in the hood. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. So this is a picture of oppression, of challenge, and like about to quit. That's the verse. But it's being played in house parties where we are turning up pushing up. It's like, a, it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder. I'll keep from going under. <laughs> like we up in there jamming, rocking it. Talking about some of the most painful things. That's hip hop. The beauty to fully express all that I am. And Lecrae, one of the most phenomenal hip hop artists of our time, in my opinion. Um, he's not a Christian hip hop artist. He's a hip hop artist who's a Christian. Um, he got to talking about the reality and the realness of having a large white audience and what happens when that, when that large white audience experiences the full expression of the hip hop that is you. I think the most profound thing in the interview is when he said that he went to one city, and I forget the, 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 the direct quote, but he saw 3,000 and went back to the same city and saw 300 because he expressed frustration with the killing of black bodies on Twitter. He expressed publicly frustration with the injustice and the inequities, the inequalities that he saw for people that looked like him at the hand of people that looked like those that were 
in the audience and in the arenas in the stadiums when he would rap and host events. It, it was fascinating to watch how these full-out Lecrae hip-hop-loving fans um, exited the building when Lecrae expressed the fullness of the burden that he carries, as well as the blessing that he enjoys. Homeboy started talking about race, started talking about his convictions as a black man and how he's, how he's experienced America, how he's experienced white evangelicalism, who was a big part of his audience at the time, and how quickly they exited the building because they weren't willing to hear it. In many ways, very deeply, I related to Lecrae. By no means am I um, a huge hip-hop artist. Um, although, you know, I got skills. I can drop some bars on here, and, you know, I, I really feel like Lecrae should have invited me to be on one of one of his singles, um, and I'm hoping that that will come one day. So don't trip. A boy got skills. That's just not my primary gifting. Um, hallelujah. Um, but I... I do have a calling on my life that has um, that has extended itself to large white audiences. So I know what it's like to have a to be a black man and have a large white constituency. I pastor a church that's very multi-ethnic, but we probably have about 50% white people. Um, when I travel across the country to preach to audiences. Um, classrooms, auditoriums, stadiums, uh, a lot of those places have majority white uh, folks in the seats. So I know what it's like to be a black man to have a constituency that doesn't look like you, doesn't live like you, probably doesn't vote like you, to have that kind of diversity and the temptation to shade yourself so that you might sustain that constituency and not make them too uncomfortable with the fear that they will leave. By Lecrae's own admission, when they left, some of his economy left um, for a season. I, I, I experienced this um, early on as I, um, as, I, as I was a little kid going to a predominantly white school. The first time it happened, the first time it happened, I was in the choir um, and we went to a choir competition. Um, and at this choir competition, my predominantly white school, we were like the best. Like we were, we were legit. We, I'm telling you, we were, we were the bomb. Me and my best friend Ricky, we're the only, a few of us. Dennis, Chad, it was about four or five pieces of chocolate in the whole choir. For the most part, it was just the stuffing of the Oreo, but not much of the cookie. Um, so you talk about white, 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 and chocolate chip, chocolate chip, chocolate chip. Oh yeah, yeah, Jamie Grant, chocolate chip. Like that, I mean, like you could count it. It wasn't like, you know, a sprinkle, it was a, anyway, you get the point. <laughs> um, so we're in a very white culture, very white environment. And we, like sweepstakes is when like, when you win the whole thing, like that, that was the choir competition and we killed it, we were bad. So I never forget, we're sitting there and we're competing against choirs from all across the region of Mississippi. Um, and one of the other schools that was there was this all black school, Piney Woods, which was also phenomenal. Like they were beast mode, yo, like they could sing. And this is choral music. So they, but you got the spirituals, you got all this stuff. So they killed the game. They're giving out the awards. And I remember sitting with Pearl. This is my first time doing this. Is when I, the, the name of the school is Pearl. Uh, so I, I'm sitting down with our, with our folks. 
and um, they haven't announced the big winner yet. They, they, they show like the classes and then they announce like the overall winner. They, Piney Woods, all black school wins a, a, a class or whatever. So they win and yo, they go crazy. Like they are flipping, they are jumping up, they're shouting, they're screaming, like they go bananas. And I'm inside thinking, I'm thinking inside of my head, wait till Pearl wins. We gonna show y'all how to celebrate. Y'all ain't doing nothing right now. Like wait till we win, cause I know we were gonna win, right? So they go bananas, they just screaming, shouting or whatever. And eventually they settle down, they settle down, and then sweepstakes, Pearl. Me and my boy Ricky, who's who's also African American, me we jump up, we like, oh, we did that, oh, Sweepstakes Pearl. About thirty seconds go by, and we realize we the only two people from Pearl jumping up and shouting. The rest of my classmates, they literally sit down and just clap. And parenthetically, looking at us, like we had lost our minds. Because we had, because we had won, and we was turning up, you know what I mean? That was the first time I ever felt it. That was the first time I felt, oh, your natural reaction is not appropriate in your current setting. Like, what comes natural to you, you can't lean into that. You actually need to shade it. You need to turn that down, because you look like a fool. And I felt like a fool. I felt it was weird. I quickly sat down and said, oh, we don't celebrate like that. We celebrate like this. Not only that, and it was an undertone, but I felt it. Not only do we not celebrate like that, but we low key look down on people that celebrate like that. It's too much, unnecessary. Like, where's your training? Like, where's your... Like, who are you? Are you wild animals? No. Act like you've been here before. Don't act like that. Yo, I felt the shade. I felt it. I felt embarrassed. I felt shame. And I thought, no, we sit down and we clap. So for, for competitions from then on out, uh, we would sit and look down on people that was also excited like it was their first time. And we just sat there really posed, polished and postured and clapped as though we expected to win, and we did, and we walked out knowing that that's what it was. It was this arrogance. I mean, I, th I learned how to do it well. It felt kind of good. Fast forward about 15, uh, 20 years from high school, I get an opportunity to go on a missions trip, and I went to Africa. And my friend Brian Loritz takes me on this trip to Africa, and he's preaching in, this largest, in the largest church in Soweto, Africa. So we're in Soweto. Uh, and the church service, oh my goodness. First of all, if you've never been to Africa and heard Africans sing on Sunday morning, the harmonies from the congregation, not even the people on the stage, but the congregation, the harmonies are the most beautiful, angelic, melodic things I've ever heard in my life. And in the midst of the worship there in Africa, y'all, 80-year-old women, along with 10-year-old children and everything in between, immediately when the music started, they're dancing in the aisles. They're dancing, and they're doing line dancing, and they're not ashamed to pull you in. So they saw me, this 70-year-old mother, pull me into the line dancing. Now I'm in Africa, line dancing, and I'm thinking, 
this is who I am. It, the rhythms were coming from my bones. Like it was so natural to express myself emotively, to dance, to move. And this wasn't even, the service wasn't even, this, nothing's happened yet. This is just the beginning of service. And the rhythm, the movement, the expression, it felt like home. It felt like who I was born to be. I felt like I was in a setting with people that I'd never met before, but they were long time family because we connected at such a deep level because in that moment my Africanness my blackness all that what is within me was was invited to shine and I didn't have to apologize I didn't realize to after then what that moment at Pearl had done to me I had allowed the whiteness of my friends and the culture that came along with that to cause me to shade my blackness and to be less of who I was. And I was reminded of the fullness of who I was when I was in Africa. We were made, created to be rhythmic, to be expressive in some senses to be loud. And I know we've, been, we've just been trained and, and, and just taught, no, the, the goal is to be as white as possible because whiteness is rightness. And none of, none of my classmates, no one did that on purpose. So my teacher didn't say, hey, we're gonna get together, we're gonna make the five black people feel bad about being black, by being really, no, no one did it. But I'm just telling you from my experience, that's how I experienced it. No one intended that. But there's a big difference between intention and impact. So just because it wasn't their intention doesn't mean that it didn't impact me in that way. I looked down on those kids from Piney Woods and thought, oh, wow, you're untrained. Only to get to Africa to feel like, oh, no, you're trained to be who you are. Only reason, the only difference between me and you kids from Piney Woods is that y'all are walking in freedom right now. And I'm over here sitting in shade because my white classmates have culturally suggested to me that to be and to act black in this space is unacceptable. Do you see that? So it's not an indictment. I don't want white people to feel bad. I don't want you to feel, it's not an indictment, but we've got to understand intent and impact are two different things. And I spent myself in a for a season shading myself, living in shade instead of leaning into shine because of the whiteness that I'd experienced. Another, another terminology that we use is internal racial oppression. Taught me to hate myself and my own people. That's what whiteness does. I would argue Willie Jennings has an amazing book that talks about whiteness as this thing and not a people. It's a culture that we've all ascribed to and that we all need to kind of tear down because it oppresses all of us, it limits all of us, um, and it causes us to, to deny who we really are and ascribe to this thing that's been created called whiteness, which is normal, which is, it defines what normal, what normal is and everything else becomes outside of normal. And I grew up feeling outside of normal because I had fallen victim to the sin of whiteness. To, the, to this thing of whiteness that would propel me to be something other than who I am and to feel bad about how God created me. One of the greatest products of whiteness is colorblindness. 
which when people say that, I know what they mean when they say, oh, but I'm colorblind, I don't see color, but that's the problem. Whiteness gives you the privilege not to see color, but when God made me, he made me black with intentionality. It wasn't like, a, oops, we left this section in the oven too long. He was like, no. But he said he they were putting melanin in. He's like, no, nah, uh-uh, no. Africans put extra melanin in. Oh yeah, get that melanin in the night. Oh yeah, different shades of melanin. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So he's in heaven creating my melanin, my skin, and my my nose, my ears with beauty and intentionality, just like he was with your white skin or with your browner skin or with your Asian skin, with your Indian skin. He brought intentionality to it. He was excited. And now you gonna sit and be colorblind. Blind to it? You gonna be blind to it? No, I want you to see it so you can celebrate it, so you can respect it. I fear that when whiteness comes root, not white people, I want you to hear what I'm saying. When this idea of whiteness as what is normal and what is accepted, when it, sh when it comes in, it forces us to shade who we are. So we can try to fit into something that we were never created to fit into, and that is whiteness. Hip hop, for Lecrae and his voice, he expressed and said, I'm gonna come out of the shade, I'm gonna come out of the darkness, and I'm gonna fully express the frustration and the burden that I carry as a black man. And I think what grieved me the most from the story is in a moment that should have been celebrated of his freedom. Um, his fans and a lot of his friends walked away from him. A lot of white evangelical pastors that invited him to come and speak to their youth group now wants to have nothing to do with him because he got free. And they refused the freedom that he wanted to walk in. It reminded me of an old story that a pastor told me. He says, if they can leave you, they were never with you. And they were never with the fullness of who Lecrae was. I feel that burden as a black man, as a black leader in a multi-ethnic space. I refuse to shade who I am. I'm a Southern black dude from Mississippi. So I intentionally break, break verbs and nouns. My verbs and nouns don't agree often. They fight all the time. Um, I don't feel any pressure to speak white to speak, speak according to the standard of whiteness or to, or to operate or to change my voice so that I can fit in the whiteness. No, I'm letting it shine, son. Let it shine. Because I can fully express who God made me to be. And what I've learned is that my brothers and sisters who are Caucasian, my brothers and sisters who are Hispanic, my brothers and sisters who are Asian, they love and they celebrate who I am. And they don't see it as blackness, they just see it as Albert. But I see it as me having the full expression to live into all that I am. The Africa part of me, the part of me that was shaped in Pearl, Mississippi, the part of me that's a Californian now, they express appreciation because I get to be myself. On my podcast, I get to be myself. On the pulpit, when I'm preaching, I get to be myself. When I'm hanging out with my friends, I get to be myself. I wanna thank you for letting me be myself. You see what I did there? There's a song. Don't, don't sleep on the bars. I'm just saying. I got a way of putting it in there. Don't sleep on it. Um, so this episode is all about where are the places where the world's trying to get you to shade your shine? 
is because of your size, you feel like you can't be confident. You can't wear special clothes. You can't go to the beach because of your size. No, no shade. Girl, let it shine. Brother, let it shine. It's because you're in a space where everyone's got a college degree and you didn't get a college degree, so you feel like you gotta play this role of being less than. No, bro, shine. Don't allow the things in this world or the people in this world to cause you to shade who you are. Shine. And also, I think we gotta acknowledge that we got a culture that subconsciously, I don't think intentionally, teaches folks to shade. Shade who you are. Shade, shade how you show up. I'll close with this. Um, I'm, I'm coming off of a spiritual high because uh, the Lord called me to, to lead an organization called Harambe in Northwest Pasadena. Um, it's an organization for decades now that have been serving uh, young kids in the hood who, who need all the opportunities they can get because they live in systems that don't give them good opportunities. School systems have cut out all special programming. The communities don't have a lot of resources. Um, so this, this organization was started by Dr. John Perkins to make sure that every kid had a chance to become the fullness of who God created them to be. So we've been building and investing in indigenous leaders for decades now. Well, we're kind of rebuilding at Harambe, and I've been there for a little bit over a year now. And one of the one of the big things that I wanted, that I, God gave me a vision for, and I've had a great team to come around to actually execute it, um, was Harambe Performing Arts. I I found confidence on stage when I was in school. I didn't have academic confidence. Um, I, <laughs> I definitely didn't have athletic confidence at all. Um, but the stage, yo, I came alive. Um, and it became the catalyst for me doing my homework, for me trying to work hard, because I was, I felt like I was just born to be on the stage and I just came alive. Well, I thought about kids like me in this neighborhood and in Pasadena, in the greater Pasadena area, that don't have arts programs, don't have opportunities for them to shine on stage. Um, and not to mention the areas in their life where they're probably, it's probably suggested to them to shade themselves because of their economic realities or because of their racial realities, the cultural realities of the day. You don't get to fully lean into who you are. So we created a performing arts program and we did a four week summer camp. Um, and y'all, let me tell you something. We went to the review the other night. They did a Motown review. So all throughout the week, they learned dancing, making beats and piano and uh, rapping. They did all these stuff, all the stuff that just reflects the fullness of who we are as a people. And it was packed with these black and brown kids. And then we culminated with a big concert for the parents. And it was called the Motown Review, where we went back to great black legends who were successful. And we reviewed the hits of Motown in Detroit. These kids performed on stage and I could not keep the tears from falling down because all night they were on this beautiful stage and the lights were shining on them. And I just kept hearing God say, these children were created to shine. At the end of the concert, standing ovation. They'll carry that standing ovation into the classroom next year. They'll carry that standing ovation to a job interview one day. You know how I know? Because I still carry the standing ovations that I've gotten. And I still carry 
those women dancing with me in Africa. First time they gave me permission to shine unapologetically with all that God has given me. Lecrae, thanks for turning the light on and letting it shine. My hope is that you'd shine today and look for other ways to help other folks shine. You were created to shine. We were created to shine. Black, black and brown little boys and little girls on the stage the other night, you were created to shine. So I don't care what's telling you to shade. Maybe you're a woman in ministry and culture's telling you to shade yourself. Maybe you're a single mom who wants to go back to school and, and, and it's telling you to shade yourself because you think you've missed that moment. Maybe you're really gifted and no one respects the gift that you have and you shrink according to the culture of what's around you because you think that they want you to be small, but God's created you to be big. Stop shading and start shining. Lean into who God created you to be. You were created to shine in that office room. You were created to shine in the boardroom. You were created to shine in the living room. You were created to shine. Maybe you're a dad who feels insecure about being a father and you don't know how to play with the kids. You don't know how to hang out with them because all you do is know how to work. I'm telling you, as a dad, you were created to shine. Stop shading yourself. Play with the kids. You were created to shine. So wherever you are, whether you're in a classroom, in a dressing room trying on clothes, in a business boardroom, in a living room, in a bedroom, regardless of what season, place you find yourself in, what would it mean for you to shine? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. <laughs> let it shine, y'all. Stadia is a church planning organization whose vision is to see a world where every child has a church. Though our vision is God-sized, our mission is simple, to plant churches that intentionally care for children. Called and affirmed leaders who plant with Stadia are demonstrating what it means to plant churches that don't simply survive, but thrive. 90% of U.S. churches planted by Stadia are still engaged in their mission on their fifth birthday. And globally, more than 40,000 children have been sponsored as a result of U.S. churches partnering with our high-impact, like-minded partners. But we won't stop until every child has a church. There are more children needing churches right now than ever before. 8,600 new churches need to be planted every year in the United States alone in order to keep up with population growth. That translates to tens of thousands of churches globally. But we don't need only more churches. We need better churches. In the U.S., 3,700 churches close their doors every single year. And globally, many obstacles get in the way of the long-term success of churches. Stadia is committed to meeting the needs of children around the world by planting more and better churches. In the U.S., we now share our portfolio of services with open-handed generosity. 
providing services with no strings attached to planters, organizations, denominations, and networks so that more churches can be planted than ever before. We pray that our generosity may spur others to invest in church planting, both in the U.S. and around the world. We're honored to be a part of the church planting journey, and we anxiously look forward to seeing how God will work to transform the landscape of communities in the United States and around the globe. And we promise we won't stop until every child has a church. If you want to learn more, go to stadiachurchplanning.org.